0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Uh, It's a very busy day here on Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Steve Sedgwick and Jeff Cutmore. And these are your headlines. HSBC posting its best quarter since the pandemic as first quarter profit surges 79%. The CFO, Ewan Stevenson, tells CNBC the lender is well positioned and shareholders can look forward to dividends again.
2: Certainly on the back of these results, it sets us up well for the year and our capacity to continue to see dividends grow from where we restarted last year.
1: UBS beats profit expectations in the first quarter as the Swiss lender says it exited all its U.S. prime broker exposure after taking a 434 million Swiss franc hit. We're going to hear from the CEO, Ralph Harmers at 8CET.
3: Tesla posts of record quarterly earnings as the electric car maker bet on Bitcoin adds more than 100 million dollars to its bottom line. But CEO Elon Musk flags manufacturing difficulties amid the global chip shortage.
2: Q1 was was had some of the most difficult supply chain challenges that we've ever experienced in the life of Tesla. In, insane difficulties with uh, with supply chains uh, with, with parts of, of over the whole range of parts.
3: Mask forecast smooth seas ahead as the shipping giant lifts its four-year earnings guidance on strong demand and surging freight rates.
0: And the view from the C-suite this morning. We'll hear from the CEOs of UBS, BP and Novartis as earnings cross the wires. Plus, we'll speak with top executives from Novozymes and Hydro. All that coming up on CNBC. So, a very warm welcome to the programme, everybody, in homage to uh, Aberdeen. I almost feel that we should be called Stuv Curran Nduf this morning, but you'll have seen that story, no doubt. Uh, Get a lot of social media commentary, and uh, I dare say we'll talk about it a little later on in the programme. But when a rebranding exercise doesn't quite hit the mark, or maybe it does, we'll get your opinions on it. Anyway, we need to have a look at these uh, Novartis numbers. So, the uh, first quarter... Uh, A figure coming in at uh, 0.91%. The net income declining at 7%. They say mainly due to lower operating income here. The uh, group uh, says uh, 2021 group guidance confirmed, noting Sandoz uh, sales uh, expectations, the uh, the business of course is made up of two operations ultimately it's the innovative medicines uh, op- uh, business and the sandoz business uh, the company says uh, first quarter core net income in at uh, 3.413 million the uh, uh, group giving us a, a net sales line of uh, 12. 4 uh, billion here. My revenue expectation was 12.53 billion. So that looks a little light of the expectation here. We were also looking for a net profit line in the 3.53 billion. So again, that looks like a a slight miss. And Juliana, the the problem with Novartis is it just seems to keep missing on the expectation here we had the same experience on the fourth quarter as we wait for the rest of these numbers to uh, drivel in here it does seem that this pharma company is unable to shake off some of the drag from uh, covid after the last 12 months
4: it certainly seems to be the case, Jeff. I mean, the good thing here for investors is that they've confirmed their outlook for the year, they provided some guidance back at the end of January when they delivered their full year results. But it is interesting to see the impact that COVID is having on this company. Looking through the uh, section where the company released their, the, the impact from COVID, they note that for Sandus. COVID-19 resulted in a historically weak cough and cold season. And so they saw softened retail demand. This is the portion of their business that is, addresses the retail um, retail user base. So they are seeing the impact of COVID there. Um, Novartis itself not involved directly in any of the vaccine development, but they have teamed up with several other uh, pharma companies to assist in addressing COVID-19. And today they talk about their efforts Efforts to help manufacture COVID vaccine for CureVac. They've also been involved with BioNTech and Pfizer and Roche as well. So Novartis's role here has been to provide manufacturing capability to help those who have developed treatments for treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. They're also doing some investigative work of their own when it comes to uh, potential COVID treatments. But I think here for investors, as you say, slightly below expectations on the uh, performance in the first quarter, but they are sticking to that guidance for the full year. So uh, potentially no major earnings changes for analysts on the back of these numbers, guys.
0: All right, terrific, Juliana. Thank you very much indeed for that. No doubt we'll uh, talk some more uh, in detail about this, um, in terms of the CEOs that we're conversing with this morning, uh, Vaz Narasimhan is very much uh, on the table. The Novartis CEO will join us at 8.15 CET for a first on CNBC interview. Steve, I was tempted to try and do the whole programme without any vowels in this morning, <laughs> but I think that's beyond my mental capability oh, at this hour. But you no doubt will have seen the Aberdeen
1: story as well. I have. I was chortling away. And funnily enough, I, I saw that we had a really busy day with the press. We've got so many CEOs. And I was going to try and slip it in a bit later, but you just nailed it straight at the top of the show. So, you know, what can I say? But, uh, yeah, there's some great memes out there, I have to say. Um, memes, memes, I should say. Um, I was Karen's chuckling at the a burden. A burden, That's no. now going to be known as a, a burden. A burden, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> a burden. Uh, but, but it's just, um, it's a great rebranding. Anyone uh, who, uh, Standard Life, uh, have we explained what it is? Ab- Standard Life Aberdeen? have rebranded basically and it's now A-B-R-D-N and that's it. So it was a mouthful right I mean they're having all the names butted together
3: yeah. on the back of the, the, uh, the deal making.
1: One vowel and a few <laughs> constants just chucked in now though yeah. Right. yeah. Anyway um, it is a very funny story and we'll, we'll no doubt uh, pay homage to it uh, many times uh, over the next uh, few weeks or so. Uh, UBS that's an easy one that is UBS, basically. Um, it's an acronym in itself. Um, the numbers are actually very solid. Uh, first quarter profit up 14% as the uh, Swiss bank has uh, uh, unveiled an Archegos charge. And I, and I heard um, Jumana uh, talking about these figures on um, Capital Connection. And um, a bit of a surprise to some that there is an Archegos charge, $434 million. U.S. dollars impact on the net profit in the first quarter. Uh, I say Arkagos. it actually says default of U.S. prime-based brokerage client mystery client, haven't mentioned the word Archaegos, but we think it's archegos. Um, They said second quarter revenues to be influenced by seasonal factors such as lower client activity compared to Q1. And that's actually where the echoes um, are continuous, what we heard from Thomas Gottstein last week from your interview, Jeff, as well. So they had a whole multitude of issues over at Credit Suisse, including the fact that seasonal activity is going to tail off somewhat. But that's where the comparisons really finish, because as we know, and as I was saying last week, UBS trades at a significant premium uh, to its uh, Zurich pair with a um Pretty much a, a price-to-book of 0.847 as opposed to Credit Suisse, which is languishing at around about 0.5. I'll just give you one or two more flashes as well. Um, the return on tangible equity, and I think this is a really important number. We really do care about rote when looking at banking figures. was 14% in the first quarter on an annualised basis. So a really big number there. Wealth management really fizzing. Uh, pre-tax profit up 16% to $1.409 billion.
3: It's interesting. We're only hearing about this news around uh, the U.S. investment firm now, in terms of the disclosure that we had around Credit Suisse and all the twists and turns as it is forced to explain that exposure. Numero as well that uh, UBS is only coming forth with the information now. Is it because they held on to the portfolio? Well, it's they didn't they have to their... as
1: well. Uh, I'll just tell you why. Because uh, just in pure accounting, I'd imagine that if it's going to be a material impact on your results, as it was with the four billion plus handle over at Credit Suisse, you have to tell the market. You have to. Tell market. But actually, the first quarter net attributable over at UBS has beaten expectations. Uh, They're up 14% year on year to 1.824 billion, as opposed to expectations of 1.59. So yes, there was a material 434 uh, million US dollar impact. But actually, in terms of the net profits, they are still beating expectations.
3: It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder whether timing comes into the mix, too, because we don't forget Credit Suisse was giving us that disclosure the other day in the conversation with Jeff about uh, whether it made sense to hold on to the portfolio or whether it made sense to to conduct a sale over the period of a number of weeks. Maybe UBS sold over the
1: period of a couple of weeks as well, Well, Jeff. What what do they say, Jeff? They say um, uh, investors are just traders on the wrong side of the trade.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's funny how... It always becomes a long-term investment once you're offside. Um, but I think I think you both make terrific points here, Steve. And yes, uh, if it wasn't material, it wasn't necessary to uh, disclose it here. But I think it does raise an interesting question. Uh, as to how many other organisations may have uh, somewhat been caught up in the Archegos story. And, of course, until anything is uh, proven to have been done wrong, this was a normal business activity with a punt uh, on a family office that just ended up on the wrong side of the profit and loss ledger. Uh, So it is worth just pointing that out at this stage because we don't have any evidence yet from any SEC investigation or any other regulatory body that anything was necessarily done illegally. Anyway, moving on to the uh, other uh, bank that we need to talk about this morning, HSBC. Of course, the numbers through and they were stellar. Uh, The bank reported a 79% jump in first quarter profit, which comfortably beat the expectations, the lender says it will not pay quarterly dividends, but will consider an interim shareholder payout in August. And of course, that's a a bit of an issue with a number of these banks as they provision heavily through the uh, pandemic period, they now have a liquidity glut, which they may be able to hand back to shareholders in a special. Well, HSBC CFO Ewan Stevenson spoke to our colleagues in Asia earlier and was asked what impact higher yields
2: are playing on results. Higher yields have very limited impact on these results, actually. It was... um mainly driven by good performances in non-interest income, coupled with a very sharp turnaround in credit relative to a year ago. But, uh, you know, very much our best quarter since the pandemic began. All regions were profitable. The UK pre-tax profit coming in above $1 billion. What drove the strong numbers uh, in various regions? If you perhaps want to start with the UK. Yeah, in the UK, we actually made more profit uh, this quarter than we made for the whole of 2020, very much driven by the turnaround in credit. What we've seen in places like the UK and US and elsewhere uh, is a sharply improved economic outlook and also um, a much reduced uh, set of downside scenarios on the back of very successful vaccine rollout programs. So it really has been the success in the last couple of months If the progressive rollout of vaccines, that's really changed the outlook for the UK and our financial performance.
4: Ewan, you your Asian portion of the pre tax profit continues to be uh, the bulk of it, uh, $3.75 billion against uh, 3.74 dollars in the year ago. So uh, still continuing to improve there. Uh, we're watching you make this Asia pivot. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? How much more uh, can you be able to get out of the Asian region? Where are you focusing in specifically in terms of the countries here in Asia? And uh, on those uh, reports, there have been reports about moving executives back to Hong Kong. Where are you guys in those plans?
2: Yeah, so we're very excited about the growth opportunities in Asia. Uh, as you say, it was another great quarter for the team down there. Uh, in terms of focus for us, Hong Kong, obviously, uh, a big continued push into mainland China, seeking to bulk up our operations in the ASEAN region, particularly Singapore, uh, and the offshore market in India. Uh, we are committed to shifting executives down there. We announced um, a week or so ago that we're shifting four of, uh, three or of, of four of our global business CEOs down to Hong Kong over the next few months. And we do expect going forward to really run a dual hub operation based in London and Hong Kong.
0: CFO of HSBC, Ewan Stevenson there. And of course, our Asia colleagues focused primarily on the business in Asia, which is a strong driver of bank profitability. But it is just worth noting, I think, for us in Europe, that the bank was able to release £400 of uh, provisions. And ultimately, those provisions would have been for bad debts. The expectation was that they would have been in the UK. But as the bank noted in the earnings announcement this morning, the uh, right-back reflected an improvement in the economic outlook, quote, notably... In the UK. So, another bank that's pointing to the UK recovery as we get relief from the pandemic lockdowns and suggesting actually the bad debt situation won't be as bad as previously anticipated, which has got to be good news as we look to the next quarter for the bank here, even though it says it won't be releasing further provisions beyond the first quarter, guys.
1: Just, just very quickly for me, there's a lot to like in this report as well, um, but there's also one or two areas of concern. Uh, Rote, again, you get a double-digit handle on the road. I think that's always good to turn on tangible equity. Great, 10.2%. That is up six percentage points year on year, so really sorting out the book there as well. Uh, obviously, the common equity tier one capital ratio of 15.9%. That makes it look well capitalized, but the area where I I, I always hate to see is net interest margin of 1.21 percent down 33 basis points on the first quarter 2020. So your NIMs, your key one well, of your key metrics, your net interest margins, I think really disappointing to be losing so much ground. On that, but then I guess that's the nature of the fact that we've got zero interest rates around the world. Well,
3: that's the thing with uh, some of these more international banks. You used to get the much higher interest rates in the emerging markets, which meant that you had much higher returns when you looked at the interest margins. But that's clearly changed with central banks everywhere cutting around the COVID crisis. So it has closed the gap of sorts with some of these international banks and those that are very focused in jurisdictions like Europe. When it comes to the earnings, when Jeff just called out the UK. If you look at the profit per region on the quarter this time versus same time a year ago, that profit in the UK more than doubled. So you can see the enormous pickup there. A little bit firmer in Asia. Europe also uh, effectively doubled too. That's improved. North America, you've seen a little bit of a pickup there, but uh, still lower ranges, I've got to say, We're looking at uh, MENA and LATAM, those markets could certainly do with some improvement. Uh, and some of the other bits that jump out too, I mean, you've seen wealth balances. Uh, that's ticked up by 23%. Uh, so this is uh, telling you about the, the wealth of some individuals at the bank. Uh, also, when it comes to Hong Kong, card spending up 12%. And we've been looking towards some of those Asian markets to see what lies ahead in terms of consumption patterns. So I think that's quite interesting just to, to take a look at.
1: Yeah, I just... Uh Again, as is my one, I, I, I just do my European versus U.S. banking comparison again. And I, and I know that interest rates are negative across Europe. But what have we got to do to find a bank in Europe with a price to book above one? The answer is it's seemingly impossible. Even UBS, great figures, you know, 0.87, I think it is. Lloyd's in the U.K., pretty much seen the sort itself out, 0.67. Uh, Banco Santander, one we always talk about. Uh, price the book the next 12 months, 0.597. We'll call it 0.6, given that. ING, where uh, Ralph Harmers has come from, 0.725. What have we got to do to convince, what have the banks got to do to convince people that their books are worth what they've got it valued at, the price to book? And uh, maybe that means that some of the, the market is still skeptical about the valuation of the assets on the book.
3: Can I talk about cost quickly, because I think that's what we've seen from some of the major banks, this drive to cut our costs and how they're doing it. it's about the move towards digital. I was just as staggered by this number that they mentioned around mobile downloads, up 73% uh, versus the same time a year ago, volume of payments up 320% over the same period on the HSBC mobile. Uh, apps. So that is telling you a story about people not going into branches as more well and uh, using uh, the mobile phone device to, to make those transactions. That's a huge change.
1: I, I hate to say it, but I mean, as, you know, someone who grew up on the branch network, but it's, it's dead, isn't it, the branch mm. network? I mean, whether people know it or not, it's gone. That's a bit of a statement, but I mean, over the next five to 10 years, who who goes into bank branches anymore?
3: I did once for a novelty to put a check in, but that was about it, right? Well, yeah,
1: but but as soon as I taught my mother with her banking app, if I can teach my mother with a banking app to take a photo of the back of the front of a check and then put a check in like that, that's kind of almost one of the last people to need to ever go into using a paper check. You know, the fact that you even get these things these days. And to put it electronically, it's, it's almost a death now, isn't it?
3: Yeah. I mean, okay. it's annoying to receive a cheque in the first place in 2021.
1: <laughs> well, well, indeed. Uh, right. Uh, let's move on from banking. Uh, Maersk has raised its full year guidance after reporting first quarter revenue of $12.4 billion in preliminary results. I hate the word preliminary. Do you read it with, with, like particularly?
3: Preliminary.
1: Preliminary. It's like abadun. No, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the Danish shipping giant cited surging demand and said average freight rates had surge 35%. I tell you, I'm surprised they're only up 35% from the people I know who are trying to use uh, containers at the moment. And that's in the first three months. And Maersk also hiked its guidance for global growth, but warned that volatility remains. Yeah, I, I heard a story about, uh, well, I just read a story about uh, an English wine producer, a very famous English wine producer, trying right. to send a pallet of their sparkling wine over to the continent. It used to be 150 quid. Now the suppliers, if you can get one, they want, and this is obviously a Brexit issue, 500 to £700 pounds they want per pallet. Which obviously
3: dries up the sparkling versus champagne and well, makes it a little bit less Or means you can't
1: export as well. But mm. that's not inflation, everybody. Nothing to worry about. Alright, let's uh, move on. Coming up on the show, a top White House advisor says a proposed hike in capital gains taxes won't weigh on investment as President Biden gears up to reveal a new economic plan in a speech to Congress this week.
3: And for more reaction to today's slew of corporate earnings, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. And let me take you to some of that U.S. market action. Fresh records on the street for the S&P and the NASDAQ. It's taken some time for the technology index to get back to those peak levels, but it seized upon uh, some of those records uh, yesterday in the trading session, also for the S&P 500. It's been a fairly significant week in the lead up to this corporate earnings reveal. Markets been looking for the evidence in those report cards, and it was quite telling uh, in the lead up to big tech names that Amazon was one of the positive catalysts for the two major indices as they reached for those fresh record levels. But uh, you can see the Dow going in the opposite direction, just pulling back almost two-tenths of a you know, this week, other than corporate earnings, we're also shaping up for a little bit more of a dovish Fed two-day meeting beginning today and markets are very much clued into the messaging from Powell about being supportive for markets. That said, we have had stronger data recently, so investors looking for any gear shift at all from the central bank. Uh, Look at the treasury markets. We did have an auction of uh, treasuries yesterday at the 2 and the 5. The 2 was a little bit soft, the 5 a little bit more supportive, but we did see a slight march up in yields. 1.57 is where we are currently at this stage, just so investors are closely eyeing uh, some of these auctions. And all what we're hearing from the corporates and whether that does mean we get a bit more life back into this yield which uh, of course has come off the 1.77 percent level we had in march now the dollar, which has been reeling from the weakness in the uh, treasury market, uh, you can see how we're trading this morning. It is trying to claw back a little bit of territory versus sterling, one thirty-eight eighty-nine. We're we'll sitting on that trade this morning. You're dollar one twenty seventy-one. Dollar supported versus the Japanese yen, also the Chinese currency. So not a bad morning after what has been fairly solid weakness in the lead-up to the Fed meeting, uh, hovering around multi-week lows for uh, the greenback. In terms of Asian markets, a little bit of a focus on the Bank of Japan today and uh, as we talk about this inflation story and the central banks uh, holding the line if they're going to pick up in prices. Fascinating again to hear the BOJ projecting that it will miss its inflation target of 2% for years. So a little bit like the narrative we had pre-pandemic still this uh, missing of targets by the central bank there but don't forget of course uh, Tokyo in uh, its third two-week state of emergency and the country of course reeling from COVID too. The Japanese market trading lower Patches of weakness too for China and for Australia, but a little bit of green just moving on to the Hong Kong market. I want to show you copper. This is seen as a barometer of growth, and we did see a fairly significant rally in the price in recent weeks, and this is what it looks like even in recent months. 91% higher from same time a year ago. You can see we're perched above 9,000. 800 points uh, with the highest level since about August 2011. So a fair amount of time has transpired from those highs. Very strong performance on the month to up 10 odd percent. In terms of the soft commodities, it's not just copper that has been rallying in the commodity space. Corn, soybean, wheat also showing uh, signs of life too. We've had corn at its highest level since about 2013. 2013 levels too on soybean futures and wheat uh, uh, rounding out that mix. So multi-year highs is what we're now witnessing on this side. Well, for CNBC Pro subscribers, some stocks to watch. Check out which companies UBS expects to pass costs on to consumers amid a potential uptick in inflation. That's available on our website, cnbc.com. White House economic adviser Brian Deese says a proposed rise in capital gains taxes will impact less than 1% of Americans and won't hit long-term investment. Deese also argued the higher levies will help fund a massive new spending plan, which President Biden is expected to lay out to Congress this week.
2: This change will only apply to three tenths of a percent of taxpayers, um, which is not the top one percent. It's not even the top one half of one percent. We're talking about three tenths of a percent. That's about 500,000 households uh, in the country that we're talking about.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market
1: moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
3: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.